welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Welcome to Mozio and FocusWire's How I Got Here podcast, our weekly focus on innovators in travel and transportation. Today, we're here with Tobias Rega, who is a managing director of HRS. HRS stands for Hotel Reservation Service and was founded in 1972 by Robert Rega, uh, his father, in Cologne as a travel agency for the placement of rooms during trade fairs. Uh, In 2008, his son, Tobias, took over the family business after serving several years as an executive assistant, a head of marketing, uh, and became CEO in 2008. Since he took over, he's transformed HRS into a global company and expanded its business services. So thanks for joining us today, Tobias. Thank you very much, David, for having me. So we like to start every one of these off uh, the same way, which is to ask you how you got here. So how I got here is, um, as you rightfully pointed out, the company was founded nearly 50 years ago by my father. So um, him being also a diehard entrepreneur, you can imagine as a little boy, um, you know, we had the, the company sitting at the, the breakfast table. So um, I early on got a glimpse of what, you know, entrepreneurialism is about and what his business is about. And um, I think my first student jobs uh, were actually working in the call center of his company doing uh, hotel reservations uh, when I was like 15. So I got involved in the business, went to get my MBA uh, work outside uh, of, of, of the industry and, and even worked then within the industry for Lufthansa at some point. Before at some point, uh, you know, it was actually my mom asking me if I wouldn't be interested in joining the company. <laughs> And uh, so I think I had a five minute conversation with my dad about joining. Um, So uh, it went like this. So I heard you're interested in joining. I'm like, yes, maybe. Um, He's like, okay, when can you start? I'm like, okay, maybe tomorrow. He's like, okay, what do you want to earn? Gave him a number and said, okay, deal done, get started. Um, So, um, you know, looking back now, it looks like our takeover process was working uh, super designed and it worked out perfectly well, which usually isn't the case. I think when you hand over the business from first to second generation founder, um, but I think the fact that we haven't prepared for it and we had to rival or wrong our way um, was actually the, the secret to success. Um, so I basically was in the company, I would say four years running different areas of, of responsibility um, picking up basically every project which I thought was important or nobody would seem to drive. And at some point, um, yeah, I took over the business and um, created out of what HRS was back then, which was, uh, you know, starting as a, as a brick and mortar business, then became uh, a basically the first OTA in 1995. Um, it was then later on from myself, pivoted into uh, certain different levels of activity. There's one side of our business, which is OTA related, where we also did some M&A and uh, still today are in Europe, the third biggest OTA. Um, We basically branched out from there into the enterprise space uh, where we built a complete end-to-end corporate lodging platform, which covers all the aspects from procurement to booking to payment and expense management. 
and we work today probably with 35% of the Fortune 500 and are the biggest player in this space. Uh, and the third line of business was uh, about uh, building tax solutions for the rental vacation markets. And uh, this was created into the market leader for the German speaking markets. Uh, a business which you can imagine right now is doing tremendously well. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the business travel is, is struggling, but that is a, is a good a diverse balance of, of what the group HRS today is all about. Um, and we have presence in now, I think, 35 different markets globally um, and uh, colleagues basically working on all five continents uh, around the world. Thanks, Tobias, uh, for joining us. It's Kev here. It's uh, good to see you again. Now, we've, we've met and chatted a couple of times over the years, and it's this backstory that I've always found pretty interesting. I mean, um, can you tell us, do you have any brothers and sisters? Yes, I do. I do have uh, one brother, uh, one sister and two brothers. So was there any, um, I, I guess, sibling rivalry for joining the company or was it always, did you sense your path? Uh, no, I, I was the oldest. So I think I was more challenged than, than my brothers <laughs> and sisters in this regard. And um, you have to see also me and my sister, we are one and a half years apart. And then my two little brothers, they're seven, eight years apart. And uh, since my dad was quite, quite old when, when he got us, so I, he was 37 when I was born, um, you know, also at some point, I think his age uh, made it difficult for the younger ones to basically uh, take proper the seat that I was uh, taking. And uh, the second component is also, you know, desire to be all in, I would say, yeah? because okay. as you can imagine, when you take over a founder's legacy, um, a person who uh, is also strong personality, then you can only do it if you're also committing yourself 110% to that venture. Um, and I think that's something that uh, not everybody was sharing as a as an interest. And it, but it's interesting that the words you said there were a founder's legacy. Now, not only is it a founder's legacy, it's also your dad. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of it's almost like double pressure. Or did or did you not see it as something that was a challenge, more of an opportunity? No, I, I think it's good you ask this because usually you, you tend to think that um, somebody is doing it because he feels he has the responsibility to do it and uh -huh. he's been talked into it. So um, my father's family was also entrepreneurs before and he didn't want to take over his father's company. And that's when his father, I think, kicked him out when he was 18. <laughs> so he was <laughs> by himself uh, uh, growing up. And I think this experience... Uh, it turned him into saying, I will never ever force anything on my kids. They are completely free to do whatever they want to do. So it was, he never tried to uh, force a conversation. It was really my uh, desire because I saw huge potential in the business. I found it an interesting business. Um, and I saw just much more opportunity coming there. And I said, hey, um, you know, if there's an opportunity and something that's already good, but you could maybe make it better and greater, um, yeah, why not? Why not exploit that opportunity? And just just the last one from me for a second. I, mean, I know you said it was often the you know the subjects around the breakfast table. Did did you through those overhearing of conversations? Did you have a pretty good understanding of what the travel business is before you joined, or or was it? And, and I suppose the follow up then is what what is your kind of earliest age that you kind of knew 
how it all kind of works? Was it just from overhearing or did you ask? Were you genuinely interested as a teenager? Yeah, I, th I think it was interested because, you know, when your dad works a lot and he's not, uh, you know, part of the usual socializings that maybe other parents are, you're asking yourself, why is that the case, right? And you're trying to figure out, okay, what is the guy actually doing? And uh, so um, I was always interested to to understand it. And then I think it started really with me when I was, I think, 14 or 15. I think 15, I started working, jobbing in the in the call center yeah, to, to just make some pocket money. And that is when I understood what, what is it that we really do? How does the customer journey look like? What are they looking for the customers? Uh, why they are basically collaborating or working with the service uh, my father built? And, and that's when I really got engaged into it to, to get my head around it. But I would say, uh, Kevin, it probably wasn't before I really um, finished my studies that I really got commercially interested in, in you know, how can that business be optimized and, and be turned into something yeah, uh, in the future. Yeah, David? Yeah, so uh, Tobias, thanks for joining us today. Um, I, I would like to delve a little bit back more into your family dynamics here, and I apologize uh, before we, <laughs> we, get, we get back onto the business here. You know, there's there's a saying, you know, about how the first generation builds and the second generation expands and the, the third generation, is the, uh, you know, spends or something like that. And I, I don't, I'm paraphrasing here. And, that you know, family dynamics in, uh, among, you know, uh, kind of, uh, family businesses can be delicate. And I'm curious if like, how did you, you said your dad didn't pressure you, uh, which I think sounds wonderful. Um, how did he, you know, like, I think, how did he instill culture in you? In, in like some of the clues I saw was you started as an executive assistant, all right? And he didn't just you know, name you CEO. Um, how did he instill a culture in you to make sure that kind of what made HRS special from the beginning wasn't lost? So I think, uh, you know, the expression we have in Germany is second generation maintains and the third blows it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but, too. Good. <laughs> good, thank you for having the opportunity for me to expand it. But uh, no, but uh, David, to come back to your to your real question, um, I think by working with my father, you know, um, I realized, OK, he has two personalities. He has a family father personality, which I knew before. Um, being his son and he has a business personality which I didn't know before before I joined him so and you know when you work together um, you obviously discuss a lot about the business uh, about also people leadership I mean all of these things right and and nonetheless at the end of the day my dad was a was a classical self-made man born 1937 yeah uh, 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 a tough guy I would call it yeah uh, so uh, you know, he wouldn't think about mission statements or what's the personality, corporate values. He would never create any scorecards for this. I mean, you know, it, it was him. He was authentic in his personality and you could basically see it, observe things and say, okay, that's what I think is good. And that's what I maybe would do differently because, um, you know, in terms of our leadership style, I think we are very different personalities because when I started, I was a uh, a young kid uh, basically had having had no experience in the business world right the only thing I had was uh, you know my capability to work with numbers and and be analytical uh, and everything I learned before and he was this gut entrepreneur so right so you have a completely different way of dealing with things but when you are 28 or 25 you have no gut right there's nothing you can call your gut because you don't have experience so and I think this is how 
I, I, I always keep saying I was tremendously blessed to work as, along with him because I learned in a few years, probably 35 years of his experience of the industry, how are players behaving, how's the industry working, uh, because things come back in a cyclical way, I think, over the years, even if tech and, and, and things change. And, and that was tremendously valuable for me. Uh, you know, leadership, I personally think, David, is, is something which needs to be authentic and also in the context of you and your social upbringing and also the time, right? And uh, everybody knows this. I mean, our parents are 20, 30, 40 years older, uh, different social context, right? And uh, where we sometimes think, oh, my God, this is so outdated. In their generation, that was was the way things were working. So I think you need to somehow figure out the things you think they are very valuable make a lot of sense and then just it for with your own way of being an authentic leader so quick follow-up question on that then before we move on to kind of more business model stuff is you know do you have a mission statement and, and values these days and kind of you know specifically what were those things that you you kept from the old guard and what did you install that was new yeah i mean sure we have all of these things today and <laughs> um, why i mean also just uh, to put it in context, I mean, back then, HRS was a German, purely German company working in Cologne, one office location. Uh, I joined 120 people back then, uh, all in one building, uh, you know, constantly exchanging with each other. Uh, much easier for people to realize every day uh, what was the culture, right? And my man the management stuff my dad was management by walking around, okay? Um, now, uh, 35 countries, a few years later, with probably 40, 50 nations, very hard to, uh, you know, to get things together if you're not trying to build some kind of a formal, more structural, I would say, more modern uh, engineered process for this. Uh, but the values to come back, entrepreneurialism from day one still is today. Okay, I'm always encouraging everybody, take decisions, but also be accountable for what you, what you, what you do. Um, second, um, for us, I think being a pioneer has been from day one part of the DNA of this company, always going, uh, taking risks, uh, going against the, the current, if you want, swimming against the current and um, trying to do things others are not doing because then there's an opportunity. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's in terms of business models, if it's in terms of markets, if it's in terms of adopting technology. Um, that's very strong. And I think what has changed over the years uh, as, as an additional element of, of company value, if you want, is what we call today Globally United. So um, the capability or the, the, I would say, the attractiveness of, of the company today is it has so many different culture backgrounds yeah, in different markets, which I think make it just a, a better organization uh, uh, to work in and, and also enriches all of us, I personally think, because I'm a big believer of, uh, you know, uh, diversity, if you want, um, in order, if you're really in a business which is global. Very cool. Um, so you mentioned something there about taking risk with, you know, technology and business models. So I think it's a good segue into kind of more talking about the business model. So you mentioned in your uh, kind of brief summary at the beginning that you 
uh, have a vacation rental management in addition to corporate, which are, I, I don't think I've actually ever seen them kind of combined in one company, and, but that's been good diversification for you guys. So could you maybe walk us through kind of, you know, in a little bit more in depth, you know, the uh, various business interests of HRS and, you know, specifically kind of like how you thought about expanding into the new ones that you've, you've taken HRS into over the last 12 years of your leadership? Right. So, um, as I mentioned, we have three main lines of business, if you want. Uh, the founding idea over the years was uh, an OTA business model. Hotel board, a portal, HRSDE, hotel.de, uh, you know, HRS Holiday. So, we built basically uh, a transaction-based business model for the, the, the leisure, but also for the business traveler. Over the years, we pivoted it more and more towards the unmanaged business traveler um, because we saw higher loyalization capabilities. We saw convenience is, not, is a core driver and not just price competitiveness. And um, that was basically the founding business model when I entered the company and it was, uh, yeah, was a, was, a, was a big player, was a market leader in the German speaking market uh, in the OTA side. Now, after I joined, um, and I would say probably in the year 2006, 2007, it came very apparent to me, we tried to internationalize the business, um, how challenging it is to really globalize an OTA business model because you have to do tremendous amount of spending on the performance marketing and branding side. And I also have to say, uh, we failed in it. Yeah, quite frankly, I mean, uh, we probably didn't have um, enough risk appetite to basically uh, uh, spend the money you needed to spend. Um, and uh, it was also a business model, as you might imagine, it, it was built as a family business, so it was about profitability. It was not just built about scale, right? So just grow, 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 despite the fact you're blowing millions of dollars out of the window. It was about really, how can we get this somehow a profitable, sustainable business model? Because that was really, I think, for us, the breaking point, which we couldn't solve because we didn't, well, my dad back then didn't want to change his financing structure. Um, and it was all self-funded. And, uh, you know, at some point, um, it, it is really challenging in this regard. And you also could see very early on that the dominance of, of Google and then the entrance of, of new players like Meta Searchers would just create a tremendous issue on the customer acquisition cost side. So the cost kept raising, uh, rising, and um, that was something which I saw as a big challenge, which is why at some point I decided, okay, we're going to basically uh, exit the globalization of the OTA model, focus on our core strong markets, the German-speaking markets, and, and uh, you know, wor work with the nice margins because of the big brand uh, awareness we had in these markets, um, the huge direct traffic through the brand awareness we've gained over the years um, and uh, quasi-loyalization, if you want. We said, okay, let's keep that. Uh, it's a cash cow. Let's run with this and build something out of it. Uh, and this is when, uh, you know, we, on the one hand side, uh, did some pivots into the leisure side of things where we said, okay, um, now we have all of these customers already in Germany, but we only have hotel business. So why don't we go into the rental vacation space? And we did some M&A there in this regard. Um, some good, some bad, I have to say. Um, at the end of the day, nonetheless, the stuff we did was uh, as, a, as a lump sum, I think, was, was good. 
Um, and we created out of a few acquisitions, we created this one integrated players, which we call today destination solutions. So they provide technology like an operating system for um, either rental vacation homeowners, but more for the intermediary market, which you usually have in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, where people are intermediaries sitting in these vacation destinations, administrating the content and the properties for the homeowners. Um, and, and we built uh, quite, a, quite a sticky model there. Um, and and that, is, that is the second thing um, which, which we built out. Um, so it's, it's, it's not so much linked to our uh, enterprise uh, corporate business travel thing, but more towards uh, our initial founding idea. And uh, the third thing which today, or which I you know, have to say pre-COVID was by far our biggest business, was um, something I started building out, I would say in the year 2010, 2011, um, to pivot into the enterprise space. So, um, because as I said, I, I knew that, you know, margins would decrease in the OTA business. I knew I had to build something different uh, if I don't want to retire with 38. Um, and uh, so basically said, okay, what do we have? We have a transaction business. We know the traveler. Um, let's go and uh, pivot into maybe the enterprise space because I saw that uh, back then travel management companies and the GDS weren't really taking care of this business. Um, you know, flights were still the big thing. Um, there was such a fragmentation that the whole market was just evolving around dealing with big chains as part of the, the supply side. And um, I saw a niche because I saw that it's a big market. I mean, uh, on the enterprise side, lodging is 40% of the T&E spend. Um, I saw really weak attachment rates between flight and hotel. Um, I saw players, uh, travel management companies who were focusing on services, uh, servicing rather than technology and solutions. Um, I saw the GDS being traditionally hooked on the air side. And um, I said, that's something we, we should go in. Um, as always, when you start something, you are naive <laughs> and you have no clue of what you're getting yourself into, which is good because otherwise you wouldn't do it. <laughs> so and I'm sure Kevin and yourself will, will acknowledge this with your own stories. Um, but um, so I said, okay, it's not a big challenge, right? We only have to do is globalize now. <laughs> we have only to understand now complete new target group enter, uh, enterprises. Uh, and we need to build new solutions like procurement, payment, expense solutions. So what's the big deal? Let's go after it um, and, and do it. I mean, I'm, I'm joking. It's erroneous, as you can see. Um, uh, <laughs> this is what we built over all these years. Um, but we started with simply saying, okay, there's a target group we can go after. And, um, and this is where, you know, we, we uh, deployed then a lot of our, our past knowledge and had to build nonetheless uh, a lot of new knowledge because when you think about it functionally, um, B2B is, is, is sales, right? It's B direct sales. There's something completely different, channel management, than running an OTA where you have a lot of performance marketing knowledge. Uh, so it meant also building a complete new functional expertise as an organization. Now, what I'm interested in here is that, you know, you've just reeled off what maybe between half a dozen or between half a dozen and a 10 new things, mm. which is probably eight more things than what HRS had done 
in the 30 years or so leading up to it. So I, I'm interested in the management style and how you had to do that, because maybe some people in the company would have been thinking, well, you know, everything was going along okay. Oh, and, and here's, the, here's the young lad come in and he's got all these big ideas and he wants to put us into 35 other countries or 34 other countries and do all these kind of things. I mean, how did you manage that process without perhaps some might considering, oh, here's the hot shop with all the big ideas who's been into business school? And I say that very respectfully, but, yeah, yeah, but do you know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's something that does come up. No, oh, and, and Kevin, I think a lot of people thought it. <laughs> so let's face it. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the truth is I'm now describing, you know, you're describing all its things in the past with an ex post rationalization of why you did things. And, yeah. and, and nowadays, looking back, it sounds so logical, right? It's like you had this perfect master plan and you followed it through. Um, and the truth is obviously... You iterate, right? You 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 stumble across hurdles. You you move from there. You realize, oh, okay, this is what we have to build out. Um, it, it's an it's it's it's. I would say it's it's an agile process if you want. Um, mm -hmm. Nonetheless, uh, sure, I had to break a lot of things because, to your point, people were saying the business is working. What are we talking about? Uh, also, you know, I always say probably I wouldn't hire the people usually I, I hired five years ago, wouldn't hire them today, right? Because, and why I'm saying this is because the company had to transform so much that um, because it was without any choice, right? To really go where we wanted to go, that not everybody is then always willing to learn that much, mm -hmm. um, wants to grow that much. It's a huge challenge for a lot of people. And some people just say, no, uh, it's too much change um, for me. And, and this was also happening when I entered the company. I mean, obviously, I started with very small baby steps. But sure, I mean, it was a, was a big transformation. And now, how did I do it? I think I tried to lead the way in a way that I tried to, you know, use strategy and, 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 and a vision in order to say why and where, where we should be going. But then also, I think a lot of the times my leadership style is a lot about leading by example. Okay. Um, not just saying what people should be doing, but basically doing it myself. And uh, when I think about building up this enterprise business, I probably have had a thousand or more customer meetings in probably 50 countries where I was polishing yeah, uh, the door rails myself and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and learned it the hard way in order to um yeah lead this lead the transformation would you say uh, last one for me for a moment but uh, you know during that process when you were introducing all those different changes what do you think the staff were saying about you you know you kind of slightly hinted at it do you think or and this and the style in which you did it were you quite a, were you trying to be a big leader or were you um just just bulldozing your way through it what would you say they what would you think they're response would be about your style i mean it's it's very hard right to judge about what others were thinking um i just uh what i probably could say is here uh, a colleague of mine he said you know at one point he said you know hrs you gotta love it or you hate it there's nothing in between <laughs> so and I, i'm pretty sure that's also it's also then uh, portraying myself a little bit yeah um, you either <laughs> like it that we are going after it relentlessly and trying to do something uh you know, to, to stand out or you might find it, it's too ambitious and it's too, uh, you know, tiring and um, yeah. And it's, it's just sometimes something which is too much for you, but yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. 
So Tobias, yeah, you, you mentioned something interesting about how uh, basically you guys kind of pivoted away from like leisure OTAs and, and you needed to spend an exorbitant amount of money. And I think this is actually um, a lesson that um, if there's only one thing that new potential startup entrepreneurs and travel take away from this podcast, it's uh, don't think you can just start a consumer brand and, and, you know, and uh, kind of come in like everyone else does. Um, but, uh, you know, because there's way too much spend by Booking.com and Expedia, of course, and we, we all know this if you've been in the industry for a while. Um, but what's interesting is that I think that um, you're starting to see a whole new crop of players come in and start to compete in travel. So uh, this weekend I was reading about Pin Duo Duo in China, which you know, does group buying and that they've launched a travel site and it reminded me how Rappi in Latin America, uh, the, uh, the food delivery guys have uh, launched uh, Rappi Travel as well. And it almost seems kind of like you mentioned something about have, having a strong brand in a market in Germany and you guys started just adding other travel features on there. It almost kind of felt like you were building a German super, you know, super app for travel within vacation rentals with business travel with everything. And that was almost your strategy where you kind of leaned into the brand recognition in Germany um, because uh, trying to compete to acquire new customers uh, was too uh, costly. I mean, would you, think that's a fair characterization and, and you know overall i'd love, just love to hear your thoughts and kind of like the future of otas and and, and travel wow that's a lot of many big questions so uh, first one um yes i mean to your point um i knew we have invested so much money also building this brand uh, loyalizing people um it's a natural i think thought for everybody who is a, who's an entrepreneur um, to say, okay, how can I exploit that asset further? Um, you know, because it's such a big cost uh, and investment you have done. And this was what's the natural thing to do, I would say. Um, now, branching out in something completely different is, um, is, is somehow risky, especially when you try to do it with your own money. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't basically take anybody on board uh, to basically hatch also the risk. And uh, when you go global, you know, you can create maybe something which is really truly outstanding, but you can also fail outstandingly. Um, and uh, so that is, that is for me um, always uh, the thing which is important though, is you never start with directly say, okay, we go global, right? You operate, uh, that's maybe when you are 500 million funded uh, we see back uh, top shot story from China, from the US, you say, okay, we do it directly now globally. Um, you, you basically start in a home market, you, you test it in a few other markets, and then you, you go from there. And we had always the, the principle, follow your customers, be smart about it, the low hanging fruits, go with your customers into these markets, because it gives you a first starting point. Uh, it's an easy entree into uh, different hotel markets. So you can, you can smartly build upon this. So we needed always to be a little bit smarter or let's say more efficient in the way how to use our funds, I would say. Um, now, um, to your comment you made, David, about the analogies with, with some other players, I think, you know, what, is, um, what I find interesting is uh, the examples you're describing are examples where um, people built something which was a different edge to maybe the same problem. Um, and I think that's also what, what we did. I mean, it's not like we invented a new category, right? I mean, we, we basically uh, built, a, I would say, a better solution. And then we started to build our own category of solution. But 
we first of all penetrated a problem and I think that's what everybody should try, right? You go in trying to address a market um, because it's very, very hard to find and, and, and establish a complete new market, right? You usually take an existing market, penetrate it with a, maybe a better, better answer for the, for, the, for the market's problem. And then once you have entered it and you have become relevant in a certain area, then you're trying to branch out. Yeah, and you're trying to then try to build your own unique thing. But this usually can only be done if you have a real understanding of the market itself. And that takes time, I would say. At least it was my case. So yeah, well, so you've added, as Kevin pointed out, you've added like eight products, right? And uh, what's what's next? Uh, I'm, I'm curious, is there, you know, without obviously revealing your internal secret, super, super secret strategy, is there any, uh, you know, window into kind of, you know, where you guys are planning on taking the company in the next five years? Sure, there's always plans of what you what what you should be doing, right? Uh, and um, uh, you know, we, we always have a saying: don't talk about it, do it. Um, and um, and and I, I stick with that with that philosophy. But um, right now, I think still um, we have to see, and I think every entrepreneur has to ask themselves today, and especially if we are operating in travel, is. Is your business model and the solution you have, is that maybe in a world which might change going forward, is it still relevant? Do you need, is your product still relevant? First question, is your business model still relevant? Third question, how can you basically in a different new world uh, differentiate yourself from the competition, from the market? I think these are all questions we all have to ask ourselves, right? And, uh, and that's, that's where I have to say, um, you know, last five, six months, I've also asked these questions myself. But nonetheless, I came to the conclusion what we built basically lodging as a service, what we call it. So uh, a SaaS-based model for corporate lodging um, is actually what's needed after the crisis more than ever. It's all about how to enable a platform, how to use the data of the platform and leverage this further. And so I think a big, stronger play which we will develop is how to enable data and the use of data in order to generate uh, additional values for the partners of the platform, be it the corporations, the travelers, or the hotel partners, to make it at the end uh, a much more balanced uh, marketplace. Because uh, today, when you think, when I think about our marketplace, then it's still a marketplace which is very imbalanced. Yeah, when you think about it, the, the lodging market has 500,000 hotel properties, I would call it. Uh, of which only 25% are chains, but the 25% of the chains make 75% of the distribution in the corporate space. So uh, there's a clear imbalance between the suppliers and the demand. And the reason for this is that the transaction costs are usually quite high to deal from a corporate buyer perspective with um, smaller suppliers. Um, and there's the trust element, which through COVID will probably grow going forward. Um, where a brand seems to have a premium versus an unbranded property. And this is where we are thinking, how can we use data in order to create for the traveler and, and the corporations the perfect balance um, based upon their own strategic, but also traveler preferences um, and taking away the transaction costs of the market. Yeah, that's, that's really something which, which we're getting our heads around. So uh, we're, 
coming up towards the end of uh, this episode, just a couple more questions from sure. me before we wrap up. You said um, about 10, 15 minutes ago, there's been some good M&A and there's been some bad M&A. What would you, we don't want to dwell on all the positive right. stuff, but uh, you know, what did you learn from the bad M&A in particular? Because it's, it's, it's such a tricky one. Yeah, um, I think the, the number one lesson is Kevin, uh, culture fit. Yeah, so if, if the culture doesn't connect, and we're not talking here about uh, Siemens buying General Electric, right? We're, we're talking about uh, us buying uh, other mid-sized companies who might have a good business idea, might have smart technologies and so on. We're talking about entrepreneurial-led companies usually. So the, the, the DNA and, and the direction the business has to move going forward needs to be completely in sync because otherwise you're creating too much friction. Um, and, and I think that is which usually makes uh, uh, an M&A process successful or not. And um, the penultimate one from me, I mean, you... you actually, Kevin, Kevin like can, you, I, can I quickly yeah, actually ask a follow-up on yeah, that? Yeah, Tobias, so when it comes to cultural fit, I mean, you said a lot of these are mid-tier companies and they're entrepreneurial already, right? So um, this is something I've, I've, I've thought a lot about, like, you know, because, uh, you know, I've ran Mosier for nine years and we've got our fair uh, amount of acquisition inquiries. And sometimes I look at the team that I know and I'm like, oh, yeah, these guys would be cool to, to work with. And others, I'm just like, oh, man, this is going to be like pulling teeth. But usually like the ones who are it's like pulling teeth are the ones who are clearly not entrepreneurial. So, you know, can you be a little more granular? If you look at four companies, they all started and they're all entrepreneurial. What were the ones that worked and what were the ones that didn't? If they're all entrepreneurial, there must have been some other qualities, personality quirks that just didn't sync with you guys. Yeah, I would say also um, consistency in the way of working. So I think discipline, uh, being structured in the way of working, being also strategic about how to work uh, using data, um, sticking to once defined routes unless we have a different set of informations and, and now want to basically come up with something new. Um, yeah, be, so a very rational approach of, of, of operating in the business. Um, I think that is something which, um, which, which I found sometimes hard and sometimes a too opportunistic view on things and not too much of a mid to long term strategic view on things. Yeah, that's something where um, I'm always looking more into the mid-long-term perspective. Yeah, um, and if people are just opportunistically uh, thinking about just the next quick fix, um, I don't think you will ever make the progress you need. Yeah, it's funny just adding on to that. I remember as I started formulating my own idea what made a good entrepreneur, I, I, I kind of drill it down to two qualities, self-awareness and hustle. And I saw all these people in Silicon Valley <laughs> who had lots of hustle, but no self-awareness. And so they'd go off careening in some direction, working their ass off and not really get anywhere. And there are the people who had lots of self-awareness, but no hustle. They quickly realized that their, like their initial problem or their initial solution wasn't the right solution to the problem, but they were too lazy to like figure out a second, third or fourth iteration. And I almost feel kind of like what you're saying is that like, I know the types of entrepreneurs you're talking about, the ones who kind of like, you know, they might have that hustle, but they don't have a lot of self-awareness and, and it's really hard to work with them because you're kind of like, we want to sit here and think about this. And they're just, that's not part of their DNA. So. Yeah, I think, you know, to your point, I would totally agree with your points, David, uh, no pain, no gain. Right. So um, <laughs> if you don't work hard enough, there's no way you will get anywhere on this planet. That is my, pure belief okay um 
And I think too many people think it's, it's easy to do things. Uh, talent doesn't bring you anywhere, I think. <laughs> entry card to the party but that's it right? so <laughs> it, it sounds it sounds like you've been all of these three in your time as the ceo which is a leader a manager and an innovator if you had to only have one of those as your epitaph which one would you like to have what do you think would be the most appropriate uh, one or three i'm just thinking uh most likely probably i get the most interest out of being an innovator yeah, okay. of, of driving new things into markets. Um, but that is the leader then in me is to really the excitement when you get really these things done, right? So my personal little puzzle brain gets excited about being the innovator, but mm -hmm. the entrepreneur in me says, if you're not a leader, you're not going to materialize it. Then you're just, uh, and you're just uh, uh, you know, then it's just not going to do the job. Okay. And finally, I, I don't know your personal situation. Let, let's presume for a second that you do have children and you do have children. Okay. So that's, that's the first part of the question then. So you're getting towards retirement age and there is like father, like son, this opportunity for you to pass on the business again. Uh, would you wish the business on one of your own children? And if so, what would be the one thing that you um, tell them to make sure they don't do? Yeah, uh, that is a very good question. So I have three little kids, uh, four mm -hmm. weeks, three years, six years. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> so, um, so let's assume my oldest one would yep. be interested. That's at least another 25 years from now, I would guess, that okay. um, you can consider that option. I would be 69 by then, which would be okay still. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But, but quite frankly, Kevin, thinking about our age today and thinking what's in 25 years from now sounds so ridiculous <laughs> that I'm not going to even entertain a second of my time of this thought. I also don't have a, a dynastic uh, mindset in this regard, right? That I say, right. oh, yeah, this is my biggest dream. Um, if in 25 years from now, the company would still be around, it will be a pretty big company because um, that's the only way how you can stay around and relevant. And do my kids who probably grow up in quite a good set of wealth and, and, and uh, all these nice things around them, do they have the ultimate hunger and punch to uh, be this hustler David was yeah. talking about? I doubt it, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because I think this is the ultimate thing you need to have. You need to be able to, you know, um, endure also, uh, you know, the hard times. And I'm not so sure if that is really what's, what's possible, but we'll see. And if it would be the case, I would be proud as hell, but, and, and happy as hell, but Hey, it's nothing that ever really comes to, to my mind thinking about. Well, this will be online on focuswire.com on other channels uh, for many years to come, and you can play this to them. I was literally about to say that. You're, you're, you're kicking the ass see, for your children. <laughs> if we hold it again, how... but hey, then I'm 69. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, that was great. So thank you very much, uh, Tobias Raga, for joining us this week. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Kevin and, and David, for having me. It was a pleasure.
Okay, so you've all been listening to another episode of How I Got Here. These are Mozio and Focuswise weekly uh, chats with innovators and entrepreneurs in travel and transportation. Thank you all, as always, for listening. If you're not a subscriber, you can do so on all the usual channels. It's Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Alexa, all those usual places. Give us a review. We'd like to hear your feedback. We'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, once again, thank you, Tobias, and uh, thanks from David and I. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.